Welcome to the Behind the Bits podcast. Your host, Scott Curtis, wants to learn everything he can about stand-up comedy and take you along for the ride. Scott and his guests talk serious about comedy in every episode. Behind the Bits will uncover knowledge from different perspectives on subjects such as writing and performing stand-up comedy, as well as booking shows and the comedy life. If you're thinking about becoming a stand-up comic, already in the comic game, or a comedy nerd, Behind the Bits is the show for you. Now, let's get Behind the Bits. One of my first guests on this podcast was Dobie Maxwell. I think he was episode maybe five or six, and we've kept in touch. As you r- listen to the intro to this podcast that comes out tomorrow, I will talk about how I've made friends with some of the folks I've talked to, and that's true. And we keep in touch, and we try to help each other out when we can. But uh, Dobie is doing something really cool. Now, if you're a comedian without a podcast, it's kind of like a dog without a bone these days. But Dobie's got a different type of podcast. It's called Just My Type. And he is hosting that with uh, Sammy Parker. And it's about diabetes, which is, you know, obviously it's very prevalent. But the neat thing is, is we've got Dobie as a type 2 diabetic and Sammy is a type 1 diabetic. And they talk about, you know, diet, um, some misconceptions. The episode I listened to today was just about carbs, about how uh, not all carbs are bad. And I just think it's really great that he's doing kind of a community service with Sammy and putting this out. And I just wanted to talk to him about it. So I'm going to bring him out right now. Here he is. It's Dobie Maxwell. How are you, Dobie? Scott, I'm great. Thank you for doing this, brother. It's uh, it's fun, and I never thought saw it coming, and those are the best projects in life. Oh, isn't it? Re- it's really great. And uh, uh, folks, if you're watching live, just go to JustMyTypePodcast.com, and you can see how you can listen, subscribe, and do all the stuff that you want to do. So first, how, how did this happen, Doby? How did you get well, into this podcast? Uh, they found me. I got diagnosed with uh, type 2 diabetes in 2011, uh-huh. and comedians... The, uh, we're on the road. We we drive. We lift the heaviest thing we lift is a microphone, which is about twelve ounces. There's no exercise whatsoever. We drink hot fudge right out of the tap, <laughs> and our our diet is bad. And we're just prime candidates. America, the world is prime candidates for diabetes. And they told me uh, I had a blood sugar of five hundred. I said, "Is that good?" But well, you're not going anywhere. Yeah. And, uh, we the, our first episode is, is exchanging our our stories. And Sammy is a type one. She's wonderful young lady. She's twenty two. She got uh, diagnosed when she was twelve. And uh, it's just a, a whole lifestyle change and diet and exercise. And most thing comedians don't talk about are now a part of my daily life. Yeah, that's great. And, you know, just for, for me, because I've, um, my blood sugar is great. Sorry about that. But uh, Good. no, no, what, don't what, be sorry, but you don't want it. What's the difference between a type one and a type two? Well, that's a really good question. A uh, type two can be reversed. 
Okay. And it's a matter of, there's a lot of technical terms. The reason they found me, they wanted to put something lighthearted and comedic. Our, our slogan mm-hmm. is, we have fun, but we don't make fun. It's yeah. a disease. When you hear it, it's like a death sentence. Oh, my gosh. Right. Other people get diabetes. And uh, type 1, is it's with your pancreas and pr- production of insulin and, and sugar, di- you know, digesting food. It's a very complicated thing. and It can be just overwhelming. So mm-hmm. Sammy actually went to school for this, and she explains it. Uh, she's not a doctor, but she sure knows a lot about type 1. And type 2 is something that if, if uh, like, hundreds of millions of people are either pre-diabetic or qualify as type two mm-hmm. and keeping your sugar down and exercise. It's just a process and a daily thing. And we really appreciate the exposure. I didn't expect this at all, but I'm learning something yeah. getting back into this. You know, I, as I told you before we went live that uh, I listened to an episode and I have to say you and Sammy really play off each other pretty well. It's almost like you guys have known each other forever. It's, it's an arranged marriage. And I yeah. told her when we met on Zoom before, and I said, look, you're in California. I'm in the Chicago area. Just pretend like you like me. I'll be the butt of the jokes. This is a great opportunity because <laughs> nobody's really doing anything like this. We're doing it first, and we're doing it best. Right. And she just, it was luck of the draw. Grand Slam home run. I won the lottery with her. She's a star. I want to drive her limo someday. I'll be the the, the rodeo clown providing yeah. the jokes, but she's a star. <laughs> well, I and with your radio background, you're certainly professional, and you know, when to talk and when to let Sammy talk and you know in in podcasting that doesn't always happen as you know <laughs> and, oh, absolutely not and it's a, it's very professional and um so think thinking about this podcast I think it's fairly obvious that that uh, diabetics would get something out of it but have you learned anything in doing the episodes that you've put out so far yeah, it can be a very lonely thing being a comedian in general. But when you're a comedian with and you're diabetic, you know what you eat. You want to go to the grocery store. I can't eat anything in here. So we want to learn about about diet, all the aspects and the facets of it. So it's not so overwhelming. And I want to have comedians on too. Billy Gardell is going to be on. He was type two for a long time. Uh-huh. Uh, I was a guy named Chelsea Rice out of Atlanta, Georgia. He's type one. Dave Mancarelli is a comic out of Reno, Nevada. He's a type one. So we like to put together live comedy shows with that theme. Because if you don't if you don't have it, you know somebody that has it. It's oh, yeah. the true diverse. There, there is no one type of people that have it. Young, old, uh, rich, poor, white, black, you know, Jewish and Gentile. Mm-hmm. It just it just runs the gamut. So right. I, I'm learning that 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 it really does, and it does bring people together. You know, people that normally would get together. Oh, you're diabetic. Are you type one? Are you type two? There's an old lingo. It's a community of millions that is really unheralded, unseen. So we're right. trying to give some attention to that. Right, right. And as far as topics are concerned, I, I told you I listened to the one about carbs. What other topics can what other topics are out and what other topics are we going to see coming out? Well, we're going to see uh, doing uh, traveling with diabetes, not just comedians travel. A lot of people mm-hmm. have a, a mobile lifestyle to eating in restaurants. Very, very tough. If it's not sugar, it's salt that kills you. So we, uh, we're having guests on too, not just entertainment guests, but uh, endocrinologists uh, planning your 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 uh your diet mm-hmm. also uh health care we've got a, a guest coming up from england he's a comedian in england and he's type one w-o-n that's his, his name so he's a comic who with type one diabetes but how is healthcare in england versus how it is in america and our parent company is canada where they have you know socialized medicine so that mm-hmm. kind of stuff people don't think about and we try to make the boring topics fun and light yeah does that make sense just yeah. without just spewing out facts and that i guess that brings about the question do different countries approach diabetes in different ways 
Well, there there is money. Follow the money. And yeah. Billions and, and trillions. There's big pharma in there looking to get their hand out. Now, uh-huh. I don't know if you know this. Here's something I learned. The uh, the patent for insulin was uh, came out of Canada. And the people that, that had the patent, they uh, $1 is what they, they sold it for because they said, we want to help humanity with this horrible disease. Uh-huh. Well, that $1 is now billions and trillions that Big Pharma uses, and the prices are going up all the time. Yeah. And there's always the meters, and the there's, it, it's like George Jetson now. It's, oh yeah, it's more advanced than it ever has. They started with a with a you know pig insulin, and they stuck the the needle in an orange to get people. Out of, it's completely different. It's big business right, right. now. So we yeah. want to put the humanity side toward it. Yeah, and I see um, I see the ads for the things you can clip to your arm instead of yep. uh, checking your blood every day. So I mean, there's just a lot of advances, but the the especially in the type two area, there are ways that you can reverse it. And and you and Sammy have touched on a little bit of that, and the carbs episode touched on a little bit. Well, you don't, you don't really think about it. I had no idea when I was in it as a comedian. You know, you go in and you have one. Uh, you call it pop or soda. I have to ask everybody where they live. You, 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 so like, so I'm in the South now. I was in South Bend, Indiana before, and now I'm in Huntsville, Alabama, and I still call it pop. So it's Coke <laughs> down there. Everything yeah. in the South is Coke. You yeah. want a Coke? Yeah. What yeah. kind? You want Pep- Sprite. Yeah, Pepsi Coke or Coke Coke? Coke, yeah. That's the whole thing. <laughs> Well, I, it's soda where I'm from. So whatever, that is the worst thing you can put in your body. I stopped drinking sodas about two years ago. Mm. And it's, moderation is one thing. And it's just, it, it can be so overwhelming. It, mm. it just is. And if, if you take care of yourself and we want to create a community so it's not so lonely, it's not so intimidating, it's not so overwhelming, try to have, and a lot, a lot of comedians are dealing with it too. Like, oh yeah, I was pre-diabetic. What do I do? So hopefully we can do some good with this. Yeah. And thank you for the plug. I really do appreciate it. Yeah. And I tell you, I, the episode I've listened to makes me want to dive in a little bit more. I, my dad has uh, diabetes. He's, he's a type two and maybe I can gain some knowledge to pass on to him and maybe I can just have him listen to it. <laughs> well, I, I would suggest listen to, we, we share our diagnosis stories. It's almost like every diabetic has got their story of yeah. how they got diagnosed and i have the weirdest one ever it's like we're keeping it short one of my testicles was five times larger than the other one now if both of them would be, would be true and it's just it, it, every doctor everybody says oh my gosh that's weird. so i had to go into the and of course there's a gorgeous room in the emergency room and i'm a comedian so i have the 100 deductible no insurance plan yeah. <laughs> and the uh, what are you here for sir one of my <laughs> So they, they get everybody, it's like a, a pit crew from, from Indy 500, and they're looking, and they say, uh, you've got diabetes. They took my blood. you got a, a blood sugar of 500. You're not going anywhere. I missed gigs over it. I was in the hospital nine days. I had gangrene on my testicles. Oh. Scott, that's not a bit. I get, so they I, I lost a little bit of my uh, my plumbing, and if it would have been two or three more days, they said, you'd have lost everything, been singing soprano in the choir. Oh, wow. So it was a very dramatic way that I found out that I got it, and people say, well, my story's not that bad. So if nothing else, else your father or anybody else listening to their diagnosis or say well mine was a little bit less dramatic so that, that's the most dramatic story that i can think of that i've ever heard yeah i've so that that's our first episode so sammy tells hers and she's a little girl you know and she it's very overwhelming and intimidating when you're by yourself and the doctor comes in and tells you, you have diabetes you don't know what it is you got to prick yourself with needles i did that for a while i was off needles in about two months mm. Great. Well, so, good. It's scary. Good. I don't know about you. I mean, people don't like snakes or spiders. Needles is my. I don't like needles at all. So it's yeah. very difficult to have to do that. 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, good for you to get off the needles, uh, to check yourself. That's, that's fantastic. Well, I, I really appreciate, first of all, you doing a public service like this, because this is, you know, podcasts can be very self-serving like mine and, uh, mm -hmm. your, your podcast is definitely for the world so that, uh, people can heal and get better and do better with their lives and live longer. So I really appreciate what you and Sammy are doing. Likewise, we're starting a good thing and the vibes have been great. So we, I owe you one, brother. Thank you for the plug. Yeah. Really nice of you. Well, uh, th thanks again for doing this. And folks, you can find Just My Type, JustMyTypePodcast.com. And it's on all the apps. I found it on all the podcast apps. So it's there and easy to subscribe and listen to. And if you like it, subscribe and let them know that Scott sent you. Thanks. Thanks, Scott. Hey, BTB buddies. As I started putting this episode together, I just realized it's my 100th formal interview. I've got a few other episodes out that are different things, panel conversations and me ranting about Spotify and stuff like that. But this is my 100th formal interview. And what did I do special for this episode? Nothing. I'm just putting it out because I don't do special stuff. I just put these out so that you can listen to them and hopefully learn from the comedians I talk to. That's all I can do. I, I'm not much of a fanfare or hoopla guy, so here you go. It's episode 100, do-do-do. That's about all I can do for you. I will say that I've made some pretty good friends doing this. You know, some folks I interview, and I interview them, and it's done. That's totally fine. But some folks, we kind of struck up a friendship, and I've kept in touch with them, and I've talked to them on a fairly frequent basis. So, you know, the friendships that you make through this is really what it's all about, along with uh, hopefully the stuff that you learn about uh, the behind the scenes of stand-up comedy. Today I've got Nick Gaza. Nick is a Chicago area comic who was in LA for a number of years. He is a workhorse comic. The guy is always out there working. Uh, he, you've seen him on the Drew Carey Show, Malcolm in the Middle, Becker, Comedy Central. He is putting on his own shows. He is what you think of when you think of a great road comic. Got a lot of great insight from him and the fact that he can get away with saying a few things that other folks can't say just because you know there's nothing mean behind it. Really good episode, and I think Nick is a really good guy to think about when you think about making a living as a comic. Nick, thank you so much for being on the show. I found you through the Maxwell Method of Stand-Up Comedy Group that uh, we are both part of. I think I've been in there since... I guess 2017 or so, and it seems like Dobie Maxwell, who was one of my first guests on the podcast, talks about you all the time, and he recently did a really nice post about a show that you guys did together that you actually scheduled and promoted and stuff like that, and the fact that... Uh, 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 Doby actually got paid, which is uh, unusual for comics sometimes these days, and just uh, sung your praises. So I really wanted to talk to you about how you got started in comedy and uh, what's keeping you going. All right. Well, um, I got started at, let's see, I graduated high school in 1983, and uh, by 1984, I was at, in, at Second City in Chicago not okay. performing on the main stage back then they kind of had a uh kind of a training um system that had three layers to it 
Um, so I start taking classes there. And my instructor was Don DePaulo, who was pretty well known uh, back in the day at Second City. Mm-hmm. And in fact, um, Joel Murray, Bill Murray's brother, was one of my uh, classmates when we started. And I'm still friends to this day with Joel. Um, so it was kind of that, you know, it was at that level of, of talent. It generally was people who were really interested. There was a few people who might just kind of be taking it just to take the class, but most people who were there were serious about, you know, getting a, a an acting career. I understand so, this. I understand the Second City is pretty grueling. Well, you know, like I said, I was just out of high school. So for me, it was, you know, it was really fun. It was like, finally, I get to do something. You know, in high school, you're forced to do all these classes that you hate. And this was actually, you know, what I wanted to do. You know, as a kid, I used to watch Saturday Night Live and I just wanted to be Jim Belushi. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and, you know, this, and I just was lucky enough that I lived, you know, uh, in right outside the city of Chicago, you know, just in a close by suburb. And uh, so I had that opportunity to go. And I started doing that. And I've been a musician since I was a kid, and I played in a lot of bands. So uh, with the, within the first couple of months of being at Second City, I got a job with a, another improv group. And it kind of was the same thing uh, that I had experienced in bands, you know. Eight people wanting to do eight different things, and it just was annoying after a while. Yeah. And uh, I decided to move to Hollywood. So when I uh, moved to Hollywood, I was just acting and I wasn't do any, doing anything else uh, other than bumming around Venice Beach and uh, smoking weed at Venice Beach every day. And uh, I start writing stand-up and, uh, because there was really nothing else to do because as an actor, you're kind of just waiting around for people to give you an opportunity. So I probably stayed in L.A., I don't know, maybe four, four months maybe. And decided, you know, uh, I'm going to move back to Chicago and start doing stand-up. And that's pretty much what I did. And within a year of probably my first open mic, maybe sooner, uh, and that was in 86, um, I started getting work. Uh, I mean, back then, there was just so many new clubs opening up. And I was making a living as a stand-up within, definitely within a year of doing my first open mic. Wow. So when you talk about making a living as far as the spots you were doing, how long were the spots you were doing after an hour or after a year? Uh, well, I mean, my first, you know, I didn't go on the road as, as an open act by any means, but I was getting feature work uh, back then. And you know, back then as a feature, you were making anywhere from hmm, 600 to to $1,000 a week as a feature act. Wow. And, I, and there was just so much work. Uh, you would work. I did a lot of stuff for, for the Comedy Zone and uh, for a company called Creative. So you would do like, you know, Tuesday, these one-nighters, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. And then they had it tied it into a Friday, Saturday gig. Mm-hmm. And I would all over, you know, mainly the South, uh, pretty much, you know, all the Carolinas and Georgia and uh, down to Ozark, Alabama, where I did a gig, I remember, in Florida, which, uh, you know, for a kid growing up in Chicago to uh, get out, you know, especially in the wintertime, was great. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no doubt. 
So th- thinking about your the fact that you really wanted to get into acting and then you pivoted over to stand up, did you did you have any regrets about um, moving back from L.A. relatively soon and uh, getting into the stand-up versus the acting? I know some acting uh, jobs came to you later on. Yeah, when I, I moved back to L.A. eventually again, and I, I had a nice run as an actor. Uh, now, my, my regret probably is not staying at Second City and getting on the main stage because uh, back then, and, and even now, you know, it's it was always cast as, you know, we need the uh, uh, the handsome, good-looking guy. We need the handsome, you know, pretty girl. Or we need the quirky-looking guy. We need a quirky-looking girl. Right? We need a heavy-set guy. Mm-hmm. And, and that's a, that's another word for that. <laughs> <laughs> and it would have been the next fat guy in line. In fact, uh, after I left, uh, the next main stage guy to make it to main stage that was a heavy, you know, heavy side guy was Chris Farley. Uh-huh. And I used to, you know, Chris was a, a few years after I had left, but I used to run into Chris, you know, doing acting auditions in Chicago quite often. You know, and I'm not saying I wouldn't have made it to the main stage, but I think I had a pretty good shot at it. Uh-huh. And, you know, had I stayed there, who knows? I, you know, most likely I would have at least been seen by uh, Saturday Night Live. Right, right. How did the improv that you did learn, how, how did that help you with your stand-up? Oh, immensely. And not only with my stand-up, with my acting. I could, several jobs that I know that I booked uh, on acting was because I improvised during the audition. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it can backfire on you, especially if the writer is in the room when you're auditioning. A lot of those guys don't want you to mess with their words. But, you know, I mean, uh, I did an episode of... Uh, uh, it was a, either the profiler or pretender. There were two hour-long dramas, and I remember I improvised. And in fact, I was on Malcolm in the Middle, and I improvised while I was auditioning. And I know that's what got me the part. Mm-hmm. So I think um, I think getting that uh, as part of your repertoire uh, is a, a great idea. I, I think you can't go wrong by taking some improv classes if you, no matter what you want to do, in in um, entertainment Mm -hmm. it's funny because i i come from indiana not too far from you're east chicago right right yeah so i was in the south bend area so not too far i mean i had done some shows in crown point and stuff like that but i had consistently done shows with a guy that has an improv troupe in goshen indiana and it would always be a mix of stand-up and improv so it'd be like a stand-up and improv and then a stand-up and improv so they just stagger it like that and he'd always want to bring me up for the improv part and I had nothing I just absolutely had I couldn't even partake because I didn't know what to do so I just stood there like an idiot and uh, it's funny I started doing this talk show back when I was in Indiana that I'm going to start up again called the btb internet talk show and in that it was all improv it was all it, it was like a, a send up of like uh i don't know between somewhere between johnny carson thick of the night or something like that and uh right. just a stupid talk show and and in doing that, I started understanding what improv was all about and i I think that i 
I should take a class because now I feel a little bit more, I guess, confident that I can actually think on my feet. And I think that's the big thing is that thinking on your feet is, is so important in stand up and acting. Yeah. I mean, for me, uh, I think the, the, the best training ground I had that helped me do well in, in improv was coming from East Chicago, a place that was very ethnically diverse and just knowing all these characters growing up. I mean, it was easy to, kind of just channel into, you know, someone I grew up with or someone's mom or dad who I grew up with. Mm-hmm. So that to me was the biggest, uh, you know, I think sometimes people tend to overthink of it. You're just playing, you know, you're pretending. That's all it is. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, the more that you can let go of reality and just pretend, especially for improv, uh, because as a comic, you're, you're, you're always going for the joke where that and improv, that's the last thing you want to go for. You just, it's if the, the more real you can be and just let the character be funny. You don't need to say funny things. Right. Right. And then I think that's where a lot of comics have a hard time doing improv. I think it's hard to go from being a comic and then doing improv as it goes from, as opposed to doing improv and then going into comedy stand up. because as a stand up, you are so focused on being you and being, you know, uh, going, waiting, you know, for the laugh and, and, and getting the punchline. It's quite the opposite in improv. Mm -hmm. It seems like almost a control thing because when you're doing stand-up, you're you're at least in control of the words that you say. And in improv, you you have no control because you're playing off of somebody else or an idea that was thrown out, and you you have to relinquish control in order to get into the character properly. Right. Improv is all reaction to the other person. Yeah. You know, where, and, you know, I, there's no, and the comics mind is always plotting. All right. Where can I take, you know, how can I make this funny? And the improv uh, mind to me is, you know, how am I more real? How would this character really respond to what this person just said? Mm -hmm. Or how do you make the other person look better? It's it's more of a giving thing than a than just uh, having the spotlight on yourself. Correct. Yeah, yeah. That's that's really good. And I watched some of your uh, sets that are on YouTube, and you're a very present comedian. In the, I don't think. Uh, first of all, you're not completely tied to the uh, set lists that you may have either written out or thought up of before the act. I, I seem to have seen you pivot a couple times. Is that correct? Yeah. You know, it's funny that uh, you bring that up because I was just talking to a friend of mine the other day. I've never done stand up on television. I've never tried. I never auditioned for any of the late night shows. Uh-huh. Um, and, you uh, know, which is not a good thing. You know, I should have uh, buckled down more, but I do enjoy the fact that it might, something might take me off on a tangent and I'll just go off on a tangent. And I, you generally always bring it back. You know, you always have your, your open middle and closing, you know, you don't want to close strong and all that. Yeah. But what happens in between? Yeah. I never know. I mean, I generally, you know, just go with what the flow is of the audience and, you know, they're, you know, and, and obviously too different. If you're getting paid a lot of money for a, for a certain type of show, it's like, all right, you need to, to always compare it to scoring a touchdown. You know, the headliner, 
needs to score the touchdown. Mm-hmm. But if, you know, uh, a lot of times, if I, uh, when I was, especially when I was working in LA, where there's a lot of showcase clubs, and you're only doing maybe 10 minutes or 15 minutes, then you could just kind of just you know have fun and try out more new material or just work the crowd more. So you know it's a nice balance you know of when you can just do a shorter set as opposed to doing a 45 minute to an hour set when mm. you mm. need to. Uh, and there are certain clubs too that allow you to have more. Uh, Ann Arbor uh, is one of my favorite clubs in the country, Ann Arbor, Michigan. Mm. And, uh, you know, the owner, they just, they love comedy. They're really into comedy. So they're cool with you kind of, you know, going off and not having to get a laugh every 13 seconds or whatever. Mm-hmm. You and you seem to really be like full of joy when you're up there. It seems like you are really having fun. And is that true? I, you know, I, you've been at it for like 30 years now, right? Uh, more than 30. Yeah. I don't know. I started in 1986. So okay, whatever yeah. that is. Yeah. So, um, yeah, you started the year before I got married. So, yeah, that's been a while. Susan Messing is one of the top improvisers in the country. She's in Chicago uh-huh. and men's. And she, I remember her telling me one time, if you're not having fun, that's your fault. And, you know, it's true. I would say, you know, 98% of the time, there are times when the audience just sucks and it's work mm-hmm. and you're just going to, you know, you know, and, and that a lot of times comes from, you know, poor uh, running of the room or, the, you know, they're allowing a heckler to, just take over or, you know, someone to keep talking. Uh, but, you know, 90% of the time, if you're not having fun, it's, it's your fault. Mm-hmm. But yeah. I mean, uh, you know, most comics, I think, would tell you that uh, they're having fun up there. Otherwise, why would we do what we do? Right. Right. Yeah. And I, I guess I hear from some folks that, you know, it becomes a grind, it becomes a job and, and stuff like that. But it's, I, I don't well, think the, you can be effective if you aren't having fun up there. Well, the grind and the job are certainly not the show. The grind and the job are traveling, waiting through security at air, airports, yeah. you know, staying in some shitty hotel. That's mm. the grind away from your family. Um, the show, that's the, you know, that's, you know, the, that's the funny part of, you know, most club owners, whatever the, the most guys would work for free. They would do the show for free. Mm-hmm. You're not paying me to show. You're paying me to, to come to wherever this place is that I'm going to travel there, to deal with all that hassle. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, that's why you're paying me. Mm-hmm. So going back before you did comedy, you must have had a, a love for it, watching Saturday Night Live and all that. Who were some of your favorite uh, comics when you were a kid? Well, stand-ups, you know, I mean, like I said, I was huge into, in high school, we watched, I mean, and uh, we would talk the next day. Saturday Night Live was one of the shows that was, you know, really big. But SCTV was even bigger for my group of friends. Yeah. I mean, that was, I, you know, I wanted to be John Candy, you know. Uh, I wanted uh, to yeah, be Joe Flaherty. <laughs> right, yeah. Uh, and the cool thing is I've got to work with three of those guys over my career. I did an episode of Grace Under Fire with, with um, Dave Thomas. Yeah, yeah. And then I worked with uh, Marty Short and Eugene Levy. And then this was where it was. Uh, I played Marty Short's brother. It was a one of those motion rides when you go to a theme park. I think it was the theme park was uh, Bush Gardens in Florida. It was some ride. Uh-huh. And I, w- I worked a week with just the three of us. 
so that was really cool, you know, getting to to not just meet but work with those guys that you were, you know, I mean, that was just they were, you know, gods to me when I was, you know, a kid yeah. at, at, you know, at TV. But as far as stand up goes, you know, early on, I remember, you know, belly crawling out of my room down the hallway when my mom or dad would be watching the tonight show and, and they had a comic on, uh-huh. you know, and kind of hiding in the hallway to, to listen. And, and my favorite comic, uh, probably of all time is Buddy Hackett. I just, oh, I love, yeah. I think he's the, the best joke teller. And a lot of my friends always, you know, say you love him because you're just like him. And, and meaning not that, you know, that I tell per- jokes that way per se, but I am the, naughty naughty guy that gets away with you know stuff because i am cute and lovable yeah (laughs) (laughs) in fact i was doing a show uh uh, in laughlin and uh it was run uh by and and the shows are hosted by um uh sammy shore who's paulie shore's dad Mm -hmm. sammy was a comic he used to open for elvis and all that and i i really loved sammy shore just and I love old show business guys, you know, I mean, I just love the lifestyle and the, how those guys are, you know, mm-hmm. busting each other. And, and so uh, one night uh, at the at the room, um, after I, I was got off stage, Simon went back up to close the show, and he goes, you know, one of my uh, personal friends is here, and it was Tony Orlando, you know, in the spotlight when, and, you know, Tony stood up and got a big round of applause. But then we ended up um, having dinner uh, after the show. Me, Sammy, and Tony, and uh, Tony had a friend with him. And uh, Tony Orlando looked at me and he goes, "You know, Nick. Uh, he goes, I had every. If you name a big comic, they've opened for him. Letterman, Jay Leno, all these guys had opened for him at one time. And he goes, I've never seen anyone say the dirty nasty things that you say and someone loved them still so much yeah and it you know i'm just lucky i i think i think an audience knows when you're 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 just being you know when it's not mean-spirited and it's not you know really dirty you know just to be dirty mm-hmm. and so i get away with a lot of that stuff because you know, i'm chubby i got a kind of a baby face so but, you know, that was, and then I was struck, and it is true, I get I get away with it. I'm surprised at what I get away with. Mm-hmm. So I just had a guy tell me the other day, he goes, uh, I was, you know, doing crowd work, and I was calling this guy's wife a whore uh-huh. <laughs> <And> several, <laughs> several times during the show, you know. And the, and the guy, and this guy who was talking to me after the show, he goes, how did that, the, guy, the husband, I get up and punch you? You called his wife a whore like 10 times. And I'm like, yeah, you know, I, it, it's just a... Uh, you know, people realize I'm joking and just, you know, goofing around and, you know, they're not offended by it. You know, that's got to be magical because, I mean, y- y- you know how it is today. It's, uh, you could, you could turn an audience just by, I'm, I mean, saying the word whore sometimes. And, right. And uh, the fact that you can get away with it, that there's some sort of magic there. And, and I don't, I, you can say it's because you're the cute chubby guy or whatever like that, but there's also got to be a sense of confidence behind your act that allows you to do that too. Well, I think that's the beauty of not being famous in some aspects of, you know, what are you going to do? Take away my, you know, <laughs> shitty, 
you know, what are you going to cancel me from? Yeah. You know, I don't have a, you know, so that is a freeing aspect of, as far as that goes. But I also work, it seems, uh, I was listening to uh, Leno and uh, Seinfeld talk on Comedians and Cars, and they were talking about, Leno was talking about, you know, going with his audience. You kind of age with your audience. And, you know, I generally tend to work more places where, you know, the average age is probably, you know, 45, 55, mm-hmm. uh, you know, 65. Uh, so, and those people are not as politically correct as, you know, a 22 year old would be, mm-hmm. you know, and I actually enjoy that, you know, uh, working, you know, like a moose lodge or, or something like that, because, yeah, you know, they know, you know, it's just jokes, you know, no one's going to tweet anything. Right. Yeah. And, and, but then, and I mean, even when I do work, you know, I, I haven't went a while, but I used to work the Laugh Factor in Chicago and, you know, they're really young audiences and I still get away with what I do, but I don't know, maybe it's also that, you know, I just don't care if you, I honestly, I've been doing it so long. I don't care if you don't like me. Right. Right. And, and that's, I, I think that's the, the confidence, it, it, you know, it's, it's part confidence and part eh, whatever, you know, it's just, it, you know, you, you came here to laugh. So if you don't laugh, it's kind of on you. Cause I know what I'm doing. Yeah. And I've known, you know, this has worked, you know, all over the country for, you know, years, you know, so if you don't like this joke, it, it, there's something wrong with you because everybody else likes it. Right. Right. And I know, so I'm, I'm of your age group. I think I'm a couple of years older, but, uh, people our age really appreciate people our age on stage talking about the shit that we're going through, <laughs> you know, just, yeah. just the, the, the aging stuff and the, the fact that, you know, we, we can't even communicate with younger people anymore because their words have changed and stuff like that. I, I, I appreciate that type of humor. Sometimes I like to watch younger comics and I like to get woke and all that kind of stuff. But I also really like to hear people my age talking about the stuff we did when we were kids, you know? Well, you know, I, I, it's, to me, it's kind of weird, this younger generation, because even, you know, sometimes I'll be talking to a younger comic and I'll be something, something Johnny Carson, and they get this look on their face. And I'm like, do you know who Carson is? I'm like, ah, I've heard of him. I'm like, Jesus Christ. <laughs> and and I think what caused that giant gap is because I knew about Red Skelton and, you know, and, and like I said, Hackett, and, because <laughs> you had to parents were watching you had to listen to what they were listening to because there was one tv and yeah and you know uh that's what you you don't but it i think it made you a better performer because it a well-rounded <laughs> you know you kind of see what i'm saying where these kids they just went off in their room and they watched youtube they only watched what they wanted to watch right right and there's uh, a there's a really weird thing going on in all the scenes now, because most of the comedy scenes, and, and, and I'm talking mostly small scenes, like I'm in Huntsville now, and right. uh, everybody, if you're not fully supportive of everybody in the scene, then you're kind of an asshole. And also, there is just no ball busting going on. It's That's the worst. That, I mean... Th- there's got to be fun and, and you got to be able to tell somebody they suck. <laughs> that's, part, that's, that's what makes comedy fun. 
You know, coming out of Chicago to the scene, there were such strong headliners when I was coming out. Larry Reed, T.P. Mulrooney, um, just a bunch of guys. And they would just rake you over the coals. You know, oh, you'd yeah. be insane. There's, and, you know, and you know, I also come from a, you know, I'm a Chicago neighborhood kind of guy where, you know, that's how you knew someone liked you is when they were busting your balls. Yeah. If they didn't, and they didn't even talk to you. Yeah. And I remember just recently, not recently, a couple of years ago, I worked at the Laugh Factory and there was this girl in front of me, young, and she was not doing well. She just ate it for 10 minutes straight. And her cat, her voice sounded like a cat. She literally was like, all right, so I'm not a big, you know, I'm not big on going up there and saying, and busting someone's balls uh, on stage because I know they don't get a chance to come back and defend themselves. Right. Uh You also have to acknowledge what just happened on stage. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. I went up there and I said, and I don't remember the joke and it's not going to sound funny now, but I mentioned something about, you know, after a rough set like that, you know, at least someone's going to put a saucer of milk out for something. (laughs) She was like, you know, sounded like a cat. That's all I heard was meowing the whole 15 Uh minutes. So it gets a big laugh from the audience. They acknowledge what that we all acknowledge what just happened in front of us. Yeah. And then I move on and do my act, right? Well, I get off stage and someone's like, wow, what'd you say about that girl? I'm like, yeah, nothing. I just said something about, you know, her sounding like a cat. And they're like, she's upstairs crying right now. Oh. I was like, you me? If, if that, you know, I, if that made you cry to one little joke, you're never going to make it in comedy. Yeah. You know what I mean, you're, you're I mean, in the wrong biz. Yeah. I was down in Louisiana one time and I was not doing well. I was a feature act. And this guy stands up about 10 minutes into my act and he goes, you fucking suck. Right. <laughs> and it's quiet. And I mean, it's, it, it totally stops everything. And the rest of the audience, I'm looking for people go, Oh, you know, that and don't be hard on them. And they're all just kind of shaking their head, nodding, going, yeah, you suck. And it made me, I just start laughing. I'm like, you know what? You're right. Tonight, I do suck. I, but, but I got another 20 minutes to get paid. So you're going to listen to my next fucking 20 minutes because I want to get. And they, they, they could at least, you know, they laughed at that. And uh-huh. then, they, then they put up with me for another 20. Not like I went on and killed. But it's like, yeah, you got to be pretty fucking tough to do this business. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's just become more of a I I don't I I don't know it's just more of a kind of a love in right now and yeah I I just remember I I I was I was talking to somebody about something and they mentioned one of their jokes that they did and I just said that you know it's just it's just a bad joke I, there's nothing you can do to save it and you know that guy still doesn't talk to me and I, I it's. I, I don't I don't know what to what to say. I would rather have somebody tell me that's a bad joke. You can't do anything with it than keep doing it and keep right. sucking. You know. I don't know. Like I said, it, it, where I come from, busting someone's balls means that you like them yeah. and that they're part of the group. You got it. And, yeah. And, you know, a comedy club should not be a safe space. <laughs> it, it, it's a it really should be a lion's den you know yeah. what i mean because that's what's gonna make you better yeah it should you be know? absolutely brutal I yeah never understand uh you know when guys come off and i you know that's why a lot of these younger guys and i just had to quit following them on facebook because everything they posted i killed last night i destroyed 
And if you know, I was there and I saw him, I'm like, no, you barely got by. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and that's why you're, you're fooling yourself, you know, because they are a generation of everyone gets a gold star. Everyone gets a participation trophy. Mm. And you no, know, we sound like old men bitching about this shit. But this is one of the jobs where you want people to be tough. A comic, a fireman. Yeah, I don't want uh, uh, some 150-pound person coming up to my second-floor apartment to try and carry my fat ass out. Send yeah. A, yeah. yeah, yeah. I didn't want you to be through because you, you know, passed that class, you know, and, and they have they have to hire you because you know it's, it's politically correct now. Yeah, and it's a, you know same with comics. You know, when you suck, you know, someone other comics you go, yeah, you suck. Mm-hmm. And another thing I'm seeing, since we're just a couple old guys bitching about comedy, another thing that I'm seeing is a lot of very, very good writers that can write an excellent joke, but they can't perform. And it comes across on stage like a shitty joke because they don't know how to perform. Do you see that? I see. A, I, I do see a lot of people uh, I don't even know if I'd say it's, you know, a lot of their jokes. I, you know, I think comedy has changed since my generation in the fact that we all were brought up with, uh, you know, our goal was to become professional paid comedians. And the way you did that was to eventually get on The Tonight Show mm-hmm. or Letterman. So you wrote and performed jokes and an act that got a laugh every 15, 20 seconds. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and you were working in nightclubs that's the other thing. You were working in nightclubs where people were drinking and you had to go in and I'll use the lion tamer reference again. You had to go in there and just crack the whip and just, and just pound, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I remember the first time I saw Tim Allen live and that guy just fucking destroyed. It was just boom, 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 boom. I mean, it was ridiculous, but now these guys have all come up and that, and, and like I said, I don't want to sound like an old guy saying none of them are funny. And I, and I do go out of my way when I do see someone that's very funny, a younger person, I thought, Hey, you're really good. Keep it up. Mm-hmm. You know, your writing is good. You know, don't, uh, you know, don't stop and do it as much as you can because, you know, I do also believe in encouragement too. I mean, but I, I say, I want to, you know, growing up, my dad believed in tough love without the love part. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, I, I, I do, uh, you know, say that, yeah, you know, and I do encourage them. A lot of times I encourage them by busting their balls and they just don't get it. Uh-huh. Now, talking about your dad, your dad was a cop, right? Yeah, my dad was an East Chicago cop for 28 years. So what did he think about you becoming a performer? Well, my dad was hilarious. I mean, if, uh-huh. if people walk and go, oh, you know, how'd you, you know, how'd you get this and, you know, who influenced? You know, my dad, first of all, he, he told a million, he knew a million jokes. And this was interesting about my dad too. My dad could tell anybody any joke and no one got offended. You know, he yeah. told black jokes to black guys, Mexican jokes to Mexican guys, and everybody just loved him mm-hmm. um, because they knew he wasn't racist. They just, you know, could appreciate it and get it. Hey, it's a joke. Mm-hmm. Stereotypes are for a reason. So uh, the fact that I, I think my dad saw him, my dad died young at 56. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think he saw me maybe, he never saw me headline, uh, which just sucks. And he never saw me on, he saw me do like maybe one or two commercials. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he was really stoked about it. I, I mean, I think my dad would have liked to have been a professional comic. I mean, that just wasn't like something someone did back in his day. Right. From where he right. was, you know, 
just didn't say yeah, I'm going to be a comic. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, the little bit he did see me, I think he thought it was really cool. Mm-hmm. I mean, my biggest regret, uh, one of my biggest regrets in life is when I headlined in Vegas and I had my, you know, I had a picture of myself with my name, you know, 15, 25 stories high on the Vegas Strip. Yeah. You know, my dad would have just, you know, been blown away by oh, that. Oh, yeah. Would have been, you know, that would have been making it to my dad. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Here, here, picture on the Vegas Strip. Yeah. Yeah. Now, when you were coming up, you know, it's really, it's really great that you so early into the game got to start doing the paying gigs and you were sought after and you were making a living at it. What comics, did, did you work with any comics that really helped you along and made you get better quicker? You know, one of my uh, mentors, I would say, when I was starting out was this guy, T.P. Mulrooney, who was a very well-known Chicago comic. And he really took me under his wing, and uh, he probably taught me one of the most important lessons in stand-up comedy. Uh, one day, uh, we were working uh, in Dayton, Ohio, and uh, we went to have lunch, and uh, I went to pay for my lunch, and he said, no, no, I got it. I'm like, no, you don't have to buy me lunch. And he says, "When Nick, when the headliner offers to buy you lunch, say yes, because I'm making way more money than you are. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But, uh, you know, <laughs> obviously that's kind of a joke, but not, but, uh, you know, he just really, uh, took me under his wing, got me a lot of work and, uh, we did a thing, uh, which was so cool. It was called, um, comedy camp that he had created and we did it at a place called Wiley's in Dayton, Ohio. Oh, I know, I know, um, oh, who's the guy from Wiley's? <laughs> I talked to him. Um, I think there might be a new owner now. I'm yeah. not sure. Um, but when I did it, I was by far the youngest guy. I was, and what they did was they would go to Wiley's and they would say, you know, what's your budget for the week? And they would take that entire budget and like they would get five or six comics. And the first two nights, uh, everybody did like 10 minutes and you did your regular, you know, act. You did 10 minutes of your regular act. Mm-hmm. The rest of the week, uh, we would get a, uh, we got a, um, a a, a classroom at the University of Dayton, and we would work. We were all sitting around a circle, and we would say, "Okay, here's a bit I'm working on. Here's something I've never done." And the, everybody would help each other write these you know, your next ten minutes. So, uh, so if that was like Tuesday and Wednesday, and by Thursday, that it was advertised. This is all new material, and you had to do all. You couldn't do anything that you've ever done before. Mm. So, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, you did all new material. So by the end of that week, you had like 10 minutes of new material, which is huge. Yeah. For like 10, you know, and I mean, good, solid material in a week. That, so that, yeah, that and, that's really and good. Was, you know, totally, you know, just a pop, you know, these other guys, uh, uh, Jim Myers was one of the guys there, Klaus Myers, I don't know if you know Jim. He used to do, uh, be on, um, uh, Kevin James show every so often. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, and Danny Stortz, who was one of my favorite comics, who is still out there working. Uh, and I'm, I, I'm kind of blanking on the other two guys because it was so long ago, but that was, you know, a really cool thing. And I, I would like to bring that back somehow. Yeah. That's, that's, that's really good. It's funny. I just took a, um, 
I think it was a 10 week online comedy class. And I came out with, I think seven minutes of new material yeah. and four of it sucks. <laughs> right, well, still, you know, three minutes of, you know, new material is a nice little, you know, if you could do that every week. Yeah. Yeah. But it took me great. 10 weeks. <laughs> right. Thanks, so yeah, a more concentrated, a more concentrated and more intense class would probably be better for me. Right. Well, like I said, you know, we would, we would spend, you know, six hours in a classroom. Yeah, you know, and just on each other's bits. That's the thing I miss most about living. You know, I, I lived in LA for twenty years, and I, I, I'm back now in, in Northwest Indiana. And that's the thing I miss most about living in LA is, you know, every day I had lunch with you know four or five comics, and mm -hmm. you would, you know, you would not necessarily just bit them, but you know, you would say, "Hey, I'm working on this," and and there, you know, people would give you a tag for that or give you a different way to approach it. You know, or you would have, you know, sometimes, you know, many times I've written a whole bit and go like, you know, this just doesn't fit my act and just give it to a friend of mine. Mm -hmm. Yep. That, that, that makes sense. I, I, so, and that's, what's different about the, the comedy scenes now is you don't, you don't have that. It seems, it seems like they've all got their clicks and then they kind of all go their own ways. And there's not that there's not the camaraderie and, you know, I think the ball busting comes with the camaraderie and it just, it just doesn't seem to be the same type of thing. And maybe in the bigger markets, you can find that because. You, I don't know. I mean, in Chicago and that's a big market. I think it's more age related possibly. Yeah. You know? Yeah. You know, when I would be doing shows at the Laugh Factory, you know, and these are kids who are, tw you know, 25 and I'm, and I'm 56 or 55 or whatever, at the, you know, at the time, the last couple of years, um, you know, they'd be like, hey, we're going to go, let's go get high outside and then we're going to go to this bar afterwards. And not once did anybody ever invite me at all. And I told my girlfriend, I came on, I'm like, what the fuck, you know, and I go, uh, you know, they, these guys act like, they literally act like I'm not even there. I'm yeah. not even like next to them hearing this and she's like nick you're as old as their dad they don't want to hang out with you yeah. <laughs> and you know i guess that you know i'm that's the only reason i could think that's true because you know i i experienced it several several times but i was never like that we were thrilled to hang out with the older guy oh yeah so and i i don't know what it is and also i find none of them have ever turned me on to any work mm -hmm. and i've given them work yeah and not one as anyone said, hey, you know what? Call this guy. He's looking for somebody. And um, I mean, that's I to this day. I just got a a text from a friend of mine now who was just in Vegas, who just gave me the Booker's uh, email. And it's just like that's just how that's how this business works, right? You know, but a lot of these guys don't. You know, they all have day jobs. They really, you know, they don't have to make their living in stand up. So I think they just approach it differently. Yeah. You know, but, uh, you know, I haven't had a, a job other than stand up for 35 years. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. South Bend was kind of an anomaly as far as I was concerned, because it was a very young comedy scene. And I was, I, I think I was the oldest one there and they accepted me just perfectly. They, I wasn't their dad. I was their grandpa. And, right. and they, you know, I, they booked me on shows. They, um, they, they just brought me in and, and made me one of them. And the, 
now I'm down here in Huntsville and I don't know where I fit in. It's right. it's, it's really <laughs> to me it's, I don't care if you're black, brown, old, young. If you're really funny, I want to work with you and I want you to do my shows too. Oh yeah, yeah. I really don't care. If you kill, hey, great. Yeah. And I really don't care. So one of the things that the Dobie has mentioned is you you book a great show. So when did you start booking your own shows, and when did you start getting all that well, together, and how do you do it now? When I moved back to Northwest Indiana, which was uh, around 2006, 2007, um, you know, I was, you know, still working the road and all that, and, you know, uh, there was just uh, a friend of mine worked at a place that had a theater, just beautiful, absolutely beautiful theater, 450 seat theater. And they would put on shows like, you know, Hello Dolly and, you know, uh, standard, you know, uh, musicals. Mm. And their audience was, you know, these prescription or prescription, well, actually, they were subscription uh, audiences that would buy the whole season. And, you know, they were mainly people in like their 70s and 80s. And their audience was literally dying off. You know what I mean? Not slowing the numbers down. They were literally dying, you know, so their audiences were getting smaller. So they brought me in to, to start doing stand-up shows to try to bring a younger audience into the theater. And uh, the shows took off and they were going really great. And I was doing about you know, between like four and six shows a year there. Um and then I would, you know, friends of mine, and I grew up in this area, so friends of mine who owned bars, they're like, hey, would you come and do a show at our bar? And mainly they wanted me to do the show, mm. you know. Um, so I would do it, you know, once. But, you know, a lot of people don't realize, you know, it's the same act to some degree. You know, I'd probably add between 10 and 15 minutes of new material a year, you know, uh, depending on, you know, that year, you know, sometimes more, sometimes less. Mm. So. I don't like to saturate, you know, the market. I don't want to just do shows every, you know, week of myself. So with the theater, I was bringing in, you know, friends of mine from LA and all that because they had a budget that was big enough for that, and I would host the shows. And then for like these bar shows, you know, I just start bringing in friends of mine from Chicago because obviously they're, you know, the bars only held, you know, fifty to you know, hundred people at most, mm. more on the fifty side, you know, or. Um, so I just started, you know, kind of getting known for for doing those shows. And then when COVID hit, the theater shut down, and it still hasn't opened. And I, I honestly don't think it's going to. I pivoted and found a spot. I had done a, a Parkinson fundraising show at this place called Bridges Scoreboard in Griffith, Indiana. And it seats about 120. It's just a great room. And it's a, you know how some, as a comedy kid just walking go, wow, this is a good room for comedy. Mm -hmm. Just has, has a great just a good deal. It's laid out right. And that's what I said about this place. And uh, we started doing one show a month uh, back last September and we've been selling out every show. That's great. Yeah. And I, you know, obviously, you know, it's only a uh, hundred and, you know, seats are 120 people. So I can't bring in, you know, guys that are not going to fly in from LA, but uh, you know, sometimes I'll get a friend of mine who will come in and say, Hey, I got you this one. But, you know, they have a Friday night somewhere or a Thursday and or a Sunday so they can make a little run, you know, out of it. Mm -hmm. And then I get, but well, that's the other fun thing too about organizing. I get to hang out with my friends. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's that's great. So we've been talking a lot about how comedy is different and comedians are different. Do you think that there is a resurgence of people who want to see live comedy, or do you think it's going to start waning? I think there's a resurgence of people wanting to see, you know, after COVID, anybody wants to see anything live. I mean, we've all been in our houses for two years. Mm. Um, And comedy especially. um, You know, you can listen to an album, you know, and kind of get lost in it as far as music goes, you know. Um, But live comedy compared to comedy on TV, there's just no comparison. Mm -hmm. You know, um, so I think people, you know, realize that, you know, they're, I didn't. I was asked to do several of those Zoom shows. I turned them each down. I, to me, that's not how stand-up works. You need to be in a room, you know, and have that feeling of that electric, you know, electric feeling of what's going on. And like you said, with my act, you know, I, I do a lot of card work, so you just never know what's going to happen. Mm. You know. Oh, Zoom! So I think- Zoom comedy sucks so bad. What's that? Zoom comedy just sucks so bad. I I did enough of them to know that I hated it. Yeah, I I, ne- I had no desire to do it at all. It yeah. was just, uh, yeah, it just just not stand up. You know what I mean? I remember one time I was on the Bob and Tom radio show, and they used to have you after you did the radio show live. They would have you go in this room with some fake brick wall behind you. And they did like <laughs> do like three jokes. And it was just horrible. Oh. That's kind of the new show would be. Like, yeah, just, uh, this is not how this art form is done. Oh yeah, that's that's super cringy. Yeah, I, so I had no desire to do Zoom shows, but I think yeah, I think uh, live shows are you know definitely going to have a resurgence. Yeah, and but I'm I'm getting, I'm, I'm getting that from the people I talk to. You know pretty much across the country that the there there's a resurgence but it's not pe- people are still scared because they don't know if they should go full bore and open a comedy club or if they should just uh wait and see so it's almost it's almost like the stock market right now people are just kind of hedging their bets as far as what you know what's the next step you know you know, that's, you know, I, uh, I thought about opening up my own club after the theater closed down, but I'm 56 and I'm like, do I really want to deal with getting a liquor license, hiring waitresses, you know, doing all that, ordering liquor and dealing with all this stuff. And, mm-hmm. was it, you know, to me, it was, it was a much better fit to find a, a restaurant that had a space that was perfect for comedy and just approach those guys. And I think that's, it's really weird now too. a lot of, you know, these young guys, they rarely do comedy in a comedy club. It's all these space, you know, places that they find, you know? Yeah. Kind of, comedy clubs, you know, generally are either big name guys or, you know, you know right now it's just stupid TikTok stars and, mm-hmm. and you know, YouTube sensations, you know, but uh, a lot of these young guys, and I got to give them credit for that because, you know, when I was, uh, starting out, you know, Zanies were like the only stand-up club. You know, there was a, eventually there was an improv and and a funny firm in Chicago, and there's still an improv out in Schaumburg. You know, there's a Laugh Factory also in Chicago, but Zanies was like nearly the only place to work. And if you couldn't get past their gatekeeper, you weren't, you know, you weren't really doing stand-up that much, you know, especially right. in 
the stand-up club. I get, you know, that's the thing with these kids that I really say, oh, they, you know, they were smart. They just went, you know, oh, you don't want to hire us? Well, all right, fuck you. We'll just go on our own show somewhere. Yeah. The problem is that they do a lot of these shows for free, which it teaches an audience that comedy is not worth paying for. There you go. Yeah. Problem. Yeah. When you I, when I see a show and they're charging five bucks to get in, I'm like, yeah, you know what you're seeing? You're seeing a five dollar show. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that was one of the one of the things that was going on in the South Bend is the, they were all all the comics were performing for free and they were doing free shows. So I actually I knew a guy that had a nice rock club in downtown and I would uh, do shows there and I would tell him, OK, you're going to get paid. And they were always surprised when I paid him at the end of the show. <laughs> You might find, uh, and I always tell older comics to do this. Um, go find, you know, a Moose Lodge, an Elks Club, yeah. you know, at one of the older, you know, men's kind of clubs. Because, and this is so, and it's so interesting how you you don't realize, you know, because of age is you, a number that you think of. You know, when we were twenty, if someone was, you know, seventy, you're like, oh my god, are they old? They're like so out of touch with who I am. Mm-hmm. You know, nowadays. You, you know, at 56 and some, you know, if you get a crowd of, of some 70 year old people, it's like, those guys are smoking weed and dancing <laughs> to rock music you know what I mean? and protesting the war. Those are some of the coolest people you meet. Yeah. You know? Yeah. 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 The crowd's 70 years old, but they're really a great crowd because, you know, they're not 70 from, you know, 40 years ago where, you know, they had a very closed mind. These guys were, you know, they've seen and done a lot of cool things in life. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah, that that's it, it's amazing that uh, I, I think fifth being in your fifties, especially the mid fifties, I think it's like the best of both worlds because you can kind of see where the young folks are coming from, but you also understand where the folks that are older than you are coming from because you've seen the sa- some of the same stuff. So it's sure. it's kind of neat. It's kind of a neat age to um, interact with both groups, right? Yeah, I agree. So here's something I ask everybody. What do you know now that you wish you would have known when you started stand-up? To buy Bitcoin. (laughs) (laughs) I wouldn't be doing any road work anymore. I'd be sitting on my island. Let's see. What did I... What did I... What what did I know now that I wish I had known when I started? Yeah, yeah. I, and I, I don't know. I mean, it, the the real basics of it has, haven't really changed. It's not like, uh, you know, oh, I wish I would have written more or, I, you know. And I, I, I don't know. Uh, yeah, there's nothing I could think specifically. I mean, I, I had, when I look back at my career, I had the most amazing fun. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I hit at the tail end of its height. I mean, we were truly rock stars. I mean, you know, I remember working in Houston, Texas. You do three shows on a Saturday night uh, to crowds of 400 apiece. And you'd go out to some, you know, some bar, disco afterwards, some dance club or whatever. And the DJs would stop the music, literally stop the music and say, oh, the, the comics from, you know, the, the whatever club you are, are here tonight. 
and the place would erupt in in applause. Oh, that's I mean, great. it was crazy how popular stand up was. Um, yeah, I, I I don't know. What do other guys say? Oh gosh, it it, it runs the gamut. Uh, first of all, be more business savvy. Uh, get paid. Uh, one of the things you said: write more. Uh, have have uh, when you, when you you're scheduled for a 20, 20 minute set. Make sure you have forty so that you can pivot and stuff like that. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I kind of knew all that back then, and I was you know because of the cast system in Chicago. Mm-hmm. You know the old the old guys. You know, really, they really taught us well. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? We, they let you know right away. Here's the rules. You know, here's who to work for. Here's not, who's not to work for. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, yeah. There's nothing like you know particular that was like, oh, I wish God that would have changed my career trajectory. Mm-hmm. Other than the thing, you know, staying at Second City, which has nothing to do with stand-up. Uh, yeah, as far as my stand-up goes, no, I think I did, you know, I think I did everything I was supposed to do. Yeah, hitting it big is just pure luck. It really is. Yeah. I mean, there are guys, I don't know how many guys I've seen going, especially when I was in Hollywood going, oh, my God, this guy's hilarious. He, he should be huge. And then other guys are like, yeah, he's you know mediocre. And boom, you know, the next thing you know, they got a deal. Right, right. You know, there's there's so many great comics out there that you know you've never heard of, and you know I, you know, unless you could say like, oh well, yeah, he was a drug addict or you know he did this, but most of those guys are all hard workers. They're smart guys, and they just you know never hit it big for whatever you know. It's just, it's just so much luck to hit it at that you know top level. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you know, I, I've enjoyed my career. I've uh, made incredible friends along the way. Uh, you know, I'm a kid from East Chicago. I grew up, you know, my dad was a cop. Everyone else, you either worked for the city or you worked in a steel mill. That mm. was your two choices right. when I was a kid. And, you know, I've, I've, I've worked in London. I've worked in Ireland. Uh, I've been to Afghanistan three times. I've probably worked at least 45 of the, you know, the states here in America. Mm. Um, you know, where I, I was, had a gig in the island of St. Martin for a month. You know, and I and I just remember walking home one night in London. I was there for about a month and a half. Going, I'm a kid from East Chicago. I'm walking down these cobblestone streets. You know, <laughs> I'm a kid from you know the steel little shitty steel mill town, and I'm in London because I wrote some jokes on a piece of paper and had the balls to get up and tell them. Right, right. And you're you're one of those guys that is respected by other comedians, and that's that's got to feel good to you because there's a lot of comics out there that are pretty popular with the crowds, but nobody else likes them. Yeah. I, I hope I'm respected by guys. You know I mean? Generally people don't, you know, tell you that. I mean, Adobe was so nice in writing that, you know, uh, about me the other day. Yeah. You know, I've always just, you know, I, I've always tried to do my best and, and get laughs and, you know, never steal jokes from people. Uh, you know, just uh, approach it as kind of we're all in the same boat and to some degree. And if we all, you know, you know, treat each other well and try and help each other out, you know, it just makes it all better for everybody. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I know we're getting close to the end here, but you, 
you do some really good crowd work. Did you always do crowd work or was that something that came naturally a little bit later on? Well, you know, I, I always did some crowd work because of my improv background, but mm. I really, since I moved back home, because what happened was, you know, I, on the road for 25 years, I was nothing, I did nothing but headline. But I mean, I always did some crowd work. But the fact that, you know, now that I perform so much in one area, you know, my biggest concern always, and, and you know, when people say, oh, you get nervous, I get nervous because I'm like, these people have all seen my act a lot already. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I, I don't want them to go, ah, oh, yeah, he, I, heard, I remember when he did that, you know, last time we saw him or whatever. So I try, like, when I was doing the theater, I would, I would write, you know, maybe one or two jokes, new jokes for that night. And then I would just tell myself, the rest, you know, of the 15 minutes I'm going to do, I'm just going to do crowd work and try and, try and you know, and I think it's interesting. Audiences really, they know when you're doing that. You know what I mean? Right. I and mean, there are times you have, you ask somebody a question and they give you a response you've heard before and you have something loaded up and ready to go, you know, and the trick is making it sound like you just thought of it. Mm-hmm. But a lot of times you just thought of it, you know, and they know there is an excitement to that, you know, knowing, hey, we were here when this was just created, when someone's totally working off the clock. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and um, I, I th- that's something I appreciate, and I, I, I've seen Bob Zaney more times than I can count, and I always try to sit up front so that he'll pick on me. <laughs> <laughs> but no, and so I've always done it, but because of hosting so much now, I do it a lot more. Yeah, and do headlines, and like I said, you know, there are certain clubs that I work that I feel comfortable. Right, I, I can go off and and kind of just you know do some crowd work and then come back to material and then go do some crowd work. And uh, so I definitely do it more now because of the situation I'm in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I got to say, it's been really great getting to know you. And I'm glad that uh, Doby talks about you so much so that I could uh, connect with you. It's, it, it's really great. I mean, we're, we're kind of cut from the same cloth being in, uh, in the area we came from and stuff like that. So I, I definitely, when I watch your stuff, it's like, yeah, it's, it's, it's a guy from my neighborhood just talking. <laughs> so. Nice of you to say, and I, and I appreciate that. You asking me to be on the on the podcast and and thank you so much for the kind words and maybe we'll run into each other uh, you know live on the road one of these days that would be very nice yeah that would be great um so where can folks find you if they want to see where you're playing or just uh learn some more about you well um i have a website uh, it's called nickygaza.com n-i-c-k-y-g-a-z-a.com and uh, there's some clips of my stuff on there. There's a bio, a couple of articles. And uh, I do need to, uh, you know, like any other comic, now I need to, to, to upgrade it up, you know, with COVID kind of, you know, happening. I really haven't touched it in a while. Yeah. So um, I need to start putting more stuff out there where, where I'll be performing. But that's probably the best way to figure it out. Or, or friend me on Facebook uh, is a great way, too, to know. And that's uh, Nick Gaza Comedian. Okay. Excellent. Excellent. Uh, Nick Gaza is comedian. Because uh, Nick Gaza is just a my public page, and I really don't use that that much. I'm Nick Gaza comedian. Yeah. 
Okay, excellent. Well, thanks again for being on the show, and I, uh, I, I think you've probably pushed me over the edge, and I'll probably do an improv class here pretty soon. <laughs> Good for you. Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, pure fun. Yeah. Uh, so much for having me, and I, I appreciate it, Scott. Yeah, thanks a lot, Nick.